Thank you for stopping by the Tell Us How to Make It Better podcast. After seeing how close Hurricane Ian came to hitting Tampa, it seemed like a great time to reach out to Hank Ovink. I met Hank when we were making my documentary film, The Last House Standing. It took us over a year to coordinate scheduling the interview, but he was such an important part of the film. Hank is a Dutch special envoy to the United Nations and a flood expert. In 2015, he was appointed as the first water ambassador of the Netherlands. He's responsible for advocating water awareness around the world, and he was part of President Obama's task force for rebuilding after Hurricane Sandy struck the northeast part of the country in the fall of 2012. He has some important things to say about how Tampa and other cities need to be ready for a hurricane like Ian. I'm George Siegel, and this is the Tell Us How to Make It Better podcast. Every week, we introduce you to people who are working on real-world problems and providing actual solutions. Tell Us How to Make It Better is partnering with The Readiness Lab, the home for podcasts, webinars, and training in the field of emergency and disaster services. Hank, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Hey, George. Good to see you. I look forward to our discussion. Yeah. Now, when uh, I interviewed you in uh, St. Petersburg a few years ago, we were talking about a doomsday scenario for Tampa, Florida. Hurricane Ian was the poster child for doomsday scenario for us. What are your thoughts on what you've seen happen with Ian um, overall? Have you had a chance to take a look at that? Yeah. So uh, there there are different ways to look at this. eh? One is that there, there it comes again, another hurricane. Uh, we we saw many, and we will see many, many, many more. Eh? The oceans are heating up. Our climate is changing. Uh, we know that the uh, the frequency and the intensity of these events will only grow. So Ian was no surprise uh, uh, to that. Second, Ian was the most deadliest storm since what was it the 30s so close to 90 years uh, and this is of course terrible because uh, these disasters are not abstract events they hit most often the most vulnerable first and foremost their homes their livelihoods but also take away the lives of friends and family uh, and that in the aftermath of such a storm such a hurricane we realize once again how vulnerable we are. Uh, and there's a lot you can do, uh, but there's also not always, uh, we can't always prepare. Third, it puts front and center on the agenda. One, climate change is here and now it's not the future. Second, next to ensuring that we commit, that, that we keep our commitments of the Paris Agreement to stick way below the 1.5 degrees is that preparedness, preparedness, preparedness. We have to invest in preparing our communities, our infrastructure, our economies and environment for those disasters because they are going to continue to come, continue to grow and continue to be more frequent. Now, one of the things we discussed when we interviewed you for The Last House Standing, and you you talked about these disasters as an MRI or an X-ray and gives you an indication of what your vulnerabilities are. Well, Tampa saw this, and when they've done studies of what damage we would have here if that storm hit, it makes it look like nothing down there. I mean, they said 60% of our businesses would be destroyed. Two million people would be injured. 
So when you look at the magnitude of that, what can this community be doing to avoid that? Because now we've seen a glimpse of our future. That was that southwest tri- you know, to northeast trajectory of a storm with winds and storm surge and everything. What, what should people in Tampa be doing? Yeah, so I think this is a, a, a multi-step or multi-pronged approach. Because uh, uh, if you look at preparedness for your infrastructure and your community, there, there's a long road ahead if you start now. Uh, and, and that means that from early warning systems, uh, evacuation shelters and routes, uh, awareness and capacity to be able to make sure that uh, you that we can safeguard all uh, that are in the line of a storm, uh, all the way to prepping our infrastructure. Yeah, of course, you need water, you need energy, you need your hospitals, uh, you need your uh, firefighters and uh, your first aid responders uh, to be there and to be on the ground. Uh, and, and of course, um, prep our environments to build a type of redundancy and resiliency in our system to withstand those storms. So I think it it goes in many steps because we know uh, we can't wait. There's no pause of 10 years where we can easily, oh, let's prep our infrastructure and our houses and then the next, we, we plan the next storm. Those storms plan themselves. So we have to prep in awareness and capacity in evacuation and shelter, in emergency response, making sure that our our critical infrastructure, being it energy, water, sewage, uh, are secured, as well as, um, uh, et uh, our hospitals and our our first aid responders and firefighters. And then on top of that, start to invest in our infrastructure, um, making sure that uh, we invest in nature-based solutions to reduce the impact of waves, uh, uh, ensure that we have capacity in our in our in our cities. Because eh? Ian was one, but if you remember Harvey, which was a totally different event, eh? a massive storm, but here it came uh, running up to Texas, and then it stayed, and it just poured rain. We had to invent a new color of rain intensity because we never had such an amount of water. And what turns out the case is that our cities all over the world, but also in the United States, are concrete slabs instead of mixed structures where water actually has a normal place. And and, 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 uh, to, to, to the point of Houston, which is an interesting city because it's a city of bayous uh, and and streams and creeks that could easily deal perfectly well with a huge amount of water. But we, you know, we turn the creeks, bayous and rivers into a concrete slab. So ensuring that you increase capacity of cities to be green and hold the water and bring it back to the groundwater and to those streams takes also a box of a healthy environment and ensures that you mitigate heat island effect. So you, you do a little bit more than only prep, build the resiliency. So the next thing is to prep our cities and our economies to be able to deal with these storms. Yeah? And that means coastal protection, nature-based solutions in our, in our cities, redundancy, and, and so forth. It's time for emergency preparedness to go mainstream. Smart, 
innovative, practical solutions that match your needs. Instinct Ready educates, prepares, and equips the everyday person for disaster. With promo code MAKEITBETTER, you can access comprehensive preparedness courses and premium go-bags. Visit InstinctReady.com with promo code MAKEITBETTER today. Preparedness starts at home. You know, sadly, it it just seems like for this area, it seems like they've already missed the boat on that. When uh, Ian was approaching and we were looking like the bullseye, one of the things that was talked about, Tampa General Hospital is on a place called Davis Islands. One of the largest hospitals is on an island with one bridge that gets to it. So clearly no thought went into putting that hospital where it is. But St. Petersburg, Clearwater, all the places that are vulnerable, sure, people evacuate. But I really think their attitude is that we're always going to get lucky here. It's hard for a major storm to hit us. They always turn at the last minute. So I don't see that there's scurrying now to plan for the future. I think people are just going, whew, it's over. Hurricane season is done. We'll worry about it next year. And that would be the wrong attitude, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So and I think uh, with this, we can look back uh, quite a bit and see around the world, not only in Florida or Tampa or the U.S., around the world, in every region, in every country, in every place, a lot of stupidity in the context of future vulnerability. Uh, uh, and there is, um, there, and I can, we can put our fingers on the map of the world and go, you know, we go there and we will find investments that actually made us more vulnerable instead of less, because that is the majority of the things we did. One and a half year ago, we had a type of Harvey, uh, a rain bomb, as we called it in Europe hitting Germany, Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands. And that bomb just went out on Germany, killed over 200 people in Europe. And for Europe, that is a number unprecedented and and flooded parts of Germany, uh, Belgium. Uh, And uh, luckily we were prepped, uh, but also because the rain actually happened in Germany. It also showcased, again, as that MRI, as that X-ray, that the vulnerability of our infrastructure was massive. Yeah? This flood, this rain event, destroyed a massive amount of infrastructure. And there was no way hospitals uh, and early uh, and first responders uh, uh, were ready uh, for such a disaster. So looking back, not the best reference. Looking ahead, much better. So I think this is exactly what I'm saying. Yeah? And our first knowing that it's an immediate need not a you know a need in the next 10 years it's today and tomorrow investing in our people investing in our capacity investing in early warning systems and the data that is needed for that as well as the capacity for people to translate that data into action for politicians decision makers and ceos and others making sure that we can get people out of harm's way invest in our critical infrastructure energy, water, hospitals, and so forth. Yeah? And, and this means rethink, yeah? build another bridge. I don't know. I I don't know what needs to be done, but ensure that accessibility is there. So we did it on a hospital row on the Lower East Side. If you move everybody a floor up, including the critical infrastructure to make the hospital oper- operable, as well as build a, a temporary bridge, then... It's not a solution for the long haul, but it can be a solution on the short term. So you have to think short term, medium term, long term. Uh, and with that, making sure that your 
your system continues to function and that you get people out of harm's way and the ones that stay are protected and safeguarded. Next to that, you need the plan, yeah? a comprehensive plan that co connects the dots or the drops. I'm a water guy, so I would say connects the drops to ensure that you say, okay, I'm going to plan for that future. I'm going to invest in nature. I'm going to open up my infrastructure. I'm going to re rethink how a hospital, a community uh, is being built. And step by step, you build resiliency, redundancy, and sustainability in your system. But that is, we can't do magic, George. It's not that tomorrow we all of a sudden, I have this magic wand and say, oh, ta-da-da, Tampa is now secured for the future. It is a step-by-step -step approach. And that is why it's so important to start with that first layer of preparedness that is between the ears and then preparedness that's, you know, where your feet hit the ground. Well, I wish you had that magic wand because when I drive around here, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I see people building, Hank, I see people building $5 million, $6 million homes and the second floor is made out of wood. Um, yeah. Apartment complexes that are made out of wood. It, it's just absolutely mind boggling. And when you look at Sanibel Island, where we used to go there every year, and I always wondered what would happen if a storm like this hit, they're completely wiped out. Do you make the decision it's not smart to rebuild. How can you rebuild an island like that? And if you're not changing the building codes dramatically, if you're not bunkering it, as you would say, you can't always do, how do you go forward after such a monumental disaster? Yeah, yeah, but, uh, all good questions. Eh? Uh, and of course, as uh, as said, I'm not, I don't, not only don't have a magic wand, I also don't have all the answers to this. Because eh? if it was up to me, we would do things differently. But sadly enough, George, 99% of global investments, so not US investments, but global investments, go to the things that increase climate change and make us more vulnerable. So that means that there are many amazing examples, but added up, they're not even close to 1% of global investment. So, and that is what I mean, is that that type of vulnerability, and you could say, Sadly enough, stupidity you can see all across the world. It is on us, people like me and you and others, to raise awareness, ring the bell, and showcase how things that need to be done also can be done. And that, alas, and I'm very sorry for that, is a step-by-step -step approach. But once you have a community, a society, uh, government, private sector, and investors, uh, individuals in those communities on the hand of the 1%, there is a real opportunity for scale and replication. This is what we see around the world is that when you start small, it can grow into big. You can scale and replicate uh, the alternative investments that you so much need to prep yourself. But it starts with awareness and it starts with capacity, often with the young, at schools, but also with the communities at risks, uh, including the politicians, providing with an, them with an alternative that actually also can be a tagline that they can run their elections on, showcasing that that future is actually a future they should want and embrace, and that the investments that come with that will have a return instead of a loss. Now, there's a community that I saw on 60 Minutes. It's a fascinating story. It's called Babcock Ranch. And it's kind of near uh, 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 Fort Myers. It's to the northeast of there. 
They were in the path of the storm, but they built that community with 700,000 solar panels. They, um, they they elevated it 30 feet. It's up so they don't have flooding. They did everything you would do as poster children for a, a, a major storm. And they had no damage. They had a few shingles, a few things here and there. So it shows it can be done. But the fact that they did it makes me look at a place like Mexico Beach. It makes me wonder about Sanibel. How are they going to rebuild? Mexico Beach, they just increased the wind rating for 130 to 140 miles an hour. They got hit by a Category 5 hurricane. So Babcock Ranch showed that it can be done. But I guess most people don't want to to bite that bullet or make that effort. What do you think the reason is? It's a combination of things. eh? I'm not sure if you you ever heard about Delmeyer, Illinois. Well, it's a community that was hit. 1993, so that's a a while ago, by floods. Uh, It was not the first time. Uh, At that time, 1993, the town decided to rebuild up the hill, move the whole town to safer ground. Can you imagine? 1992, it was like no climate march, no Paris Agreement, no, you know, uh, uh, no IDAs yet. I mean, we had storms, but it was different. Uh, And they did a step-by-step approach. Now, they're amazing. Yeah? They're resilient. They are like Pepcock Ranch. Yeah? What is it called? Uh, the future is bright. <laughs> That's what they, they, they Welcome to a better life. A new yep. kind of hometown, Pepcock Ranch. Yes. Okay. So you can build from scratch a new time like Pepcock Ranch. You can rebuild and move. Uh, move to... You can build the existing infrastructure in a far more resilient and redundant way. But that, yeah, as I said, there's no magic wand here. You can't do it overnight. So we need those examples, yeah? like uh, in this case, Babcock Ranch uh, or Belmeyer, Illinois, or uh, Chennai, parts of Chennai, India, Pulna, Samarang, around the world. Uh, communities, towns, cities, mayors, community leaders, private sector investment that say, hey, there is an alternative to this vulnerability. There is an alternative actually to the stupidity or you know the uncertainty of the past. And step by step, if we are uh, um, more, and le- more and more scaling and replicating those examples, the tide will turn. Yeah, uh, the the one percent will become two, the two four for sixteen and sixteen the majority. Yeah? So tipping that balance in in the current world means that you're you're still working on a small scale mi- minority of investments, communities, people, and leadership. But the, the the putting the spotlight on them and ensuring that they're capacitated. Uh, to do what they want and to ensure their better and brighter future is of critical importance. Now, when I originally saw the story about you on 60 Minutes and you talked about in the Netherlands how people were relocated away from, the government made them move to uh, safer areas because of all the flooding problems. I don't know that you could get away with that in this country. People are so (laughs) trenched in um, on their rights. Like, I don't think you could say to Sanibel Island, you can't rebuild. So I, I guess you just hope that it's been pre-disastered and it's not going to happen again. I mean, what, what's, what's the hope there that it could survive another uh, Category 4, almost 5 hurricane? Yeah, so in New York, after Hurricane Sandy, there were buyout programs uh, led by New York State. 
uh, it's actually interesting. If you look at the Rebuild by Design website, the initiative I launched uh, in uh, under uh, President Obama's leadership and the Hurricane Sandy Task Force, it's a now a 501c3 that is doing quite a bit of initiatives on resiliency. They mapped vulnerability across every county in the U.S. now. They mapped, uh, uh, they started in New York State, uh, showcasing that uh, climate-related impacts are hitting er every community in the last decade uh, more than six or seven times. Uh, they helped raise awareness on the resiliency bond. That resiliency bond was on the ticket of the last elections in New York State, got a majority of the votes, and now there is indeed spending to build resiliency. So on a state level, trickling down to counties and communities. So there is an, uh, an appetite. Uh, there is better insight. There is a, an amazing opportunity uh, to do that. So um, I'm, I'm not saying it, it can't be done, but it takes time. And some parts of the US and the world will lag behind and others will be front runners. And I think it's upon the front runners to to continue their speed and skill, but at the same time, see who they can tag along. Uh, and, and the ones that are left behind are, well, the, the ones that continue to stay most vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like the cost of being proactive is a lot lower than the cost of reacting after the fact. Yeah. yeah but that's old. It's an old wisdom. Uh, Stern, uh, the economist, when he drafted the Stern report, the economics on climate, I think it was 2005, he already said the cost of inaction whoa, is way bigger than the cost of action. So you could add to that. It's not only that the cost of inaction costs us more in lives, livelihoods and economies, and the cost of action is far less. The cost of action also creates a reward and added value. If we invest in nature and resiliency, it provides us better health, amazing jobs, opportunities for our economies to really change course, to work not only on resiliency, but also on, on mitigation and uh, keep ourselves within the 1.5 degree, making us less vulnerable uh, and more opportunities. So it's the same with water. Eh? Water is part of this whole climate narrative. If you invest in water, it trickles down across everything in society. It's for a better, healthy environment. It's for clean and green jobs. It's for equality. It's for capacitating people. It's mitigating the risks of climate impacts, building resiliency and nature. So it helps. But those rewards are across society. And it's hard from a, you know, a single focus dollar profit uh, perspective to say, I invest my 10 bucks in water. I want 20 in return. No, you get 20 in return, but they're dispersed. You know, they're all over your society. And that reward demands political leadership. That reward, yeah, driving that reward across your communities and society demands that we take a whole of society, whole of government approach. And that's not easy, uh, of course, in a world that's becoming more fragmented. Yeah, anything that de depends on political leadership in this country is uh, is tough. It's tough to accomplish. So if you had to speak to people in Tampa, St. Petersburg, Clearwater, and say what their takeaway should be from Ian, what would you say the ultimate takeaway point should be for, for us here in this area? From Ian? Well, again, it is the wake-up call, but don't press the snooze button. Eh? Uh, get out of bed uh, and start to prep. 
start to prep yourself with the right amount of information, build help, build capacity in your community, emergency routes, shelters, and information. Look at your critical infrastructure, assess vulnerabilities, uh, but also assess opportunities, what you can do first, second, and third. Develop a plan on the long term and start to build capacity. Call out to your political, but also your societal leaders, public and private, and work with them to come up with that longer term plan that is investable, uh, that is transactionable, that is transformative, uh, and that can really help safeguard the future of the community for the generations to come. Last question, because I know you deal with these things all the time. Which is a, a tougher crowd for you to deal with? The people in this area that had another miss and go few and go forward, or the people that are in a community that was wiped out and now they're faced with how to rebuild? Which one is, uh, a, a, an, I don't want to say an easier audience, but which one seems to be more open? You never know. And, and, and there is a stubbornness in people around the world. Uh, and we saw it uh, also in the U.S., but also in other places. Uh, I remember a good friend of mine who walked around in Florida after uh, one of them that so hit many. the panhandle uh, uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and there was this house in, you know, next to the road. Uh, he's a documentary photographer, Kadir von Loa. And he was filming and he saw the house and he, and he said, hey, well, a whole house next to the road. And there were people around it and they asked, hey, whose house is this? And this guy said, oh, it's my house. He said, it's not supposed to be here, right? No, no. He said, walk with me. And they walked three blocks and they found the foundation where the house was supposed to be on. But the storm just moved it wing, way and around the corner in the sideway. Uh, and Kali asked, perhaps not a good idea to have your house here. No, no, the man said, yeah, this just happens. We're going to rebuild. So the stubbornness uh, that is within um, still a majority of the people to, to take it for granted, more or less, the loss uh, and go back to uh, the conditions they had before, they are standing with their back to the future. They're only looking at the past. They're not rebuilding in the context of the youth. Luckily, more and more appetite, capacity, and willingness there is around the world to look at that future as an opportunity, as a reference to build back much better, build resiliency, equitability, and sustainability in your communities uh, and to seek uh, uh, and find that better future and become an inspiration for others, for uh, others to make the same decision. Yeah, I mean, that sounds great. Un un unfortunately, when hurricane season ends here, I, I don't know what the people behind the scenes are doing because I'm not uh, in those meetings, but... Everybody else just goes, ah, we made another one. We're safe. And that's probably the worst reaction they could have is to do nothing. Yeah. The snooze button is hit way too often around the world, not only in the U.S. Yeah. So let's get rid of the alarm clock and just look at the future. Hank, thank you so much for your time. I uh, I appreciate your your wisdom as always. And uh, let's, let's hope people wake up. I guess that's what we have to hope for. Yeah, no. And not only hope. Uh, we need to continue to have these conversations, talk to them, do the outreach, but also showcase that there are massive opportunities in doing so. It's not only a wake-up call, it's something we can do. There's a, 
is an investment opportunity. There's a business opportunity. There's a political opportunity. It is the future we want. It's amazing. So it's not scary to look at that future. It's a brighter future than the one. If you want the one of disasters, look back. If you want the one beyond disasters, we have to look ahead. So there's a, a, a silver lining on that horizon for sure. But thanks so much, George, for having the conversation. We need to inspire the world uh, to, uh, to do things differently. We do. Thanks, Hank. Thank you. Let me thank you for joining me for today's Tell Us How to Make a Better podcast. Information to follow Hank is in the show notes, as well as my contact information. Now, if you enjoyed listening to this episode, please become a subscriber, share the link with others, and even leave a review. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.